With just over a week to go, Republicans have the big mo. Dems want no part of Joe. And did either candidate in the Pennsylvania debate score a knockout blow? Oh, God, no. Looking for answers on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Link to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 394 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. One of the most highly anticipated events on the 2022 campaign calendar was the October 25th debate in Pennsylvania between Mehmet Oz, the Republican candidate for the seat Senator Pat Toomey is vacating, and Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, his Democratic opponent. Not long before the May primary, Fetterman suffered a devastating stroke that almost killed him. It dramatically affected his speech. It took a while, but eventually Fetterman was able to campaign and even hold some interviews with journalists. But he didn't debate, despite Oz's tauntings, and voters were wondering if he was up to the job. Whether he is or not is still up for grabs. The race in which Fetterman led most of the year is now neck and neck. But as for the question, was he up for the debate? The honest answer is, maybe not. Some pundits and Democrats suggested, after watching his performance, that perhaps he should have avoided the debate altogether. Fetterman said that he knew his speech and thought processes might be impaired, but that the voters deserved to see him show up. He tried to address his limitations from the outset. And let's also talk about the elephant in the room. I had a stroke. He's never let me forget that. And I might miss some words during this debate, mush two words together, but it knocked me down, but I'm going to keep coming back up. And that's fine. But his opening statement started not so good. Instead of saying good evening, he led off with this. Hi. Good night, everybody. I'm running to serve Pennsylvania. He's running to use Pennsylvania. Here's a man that spent more than $20 million of his own money to try to buy that seat. I'm also having to talk about something called the Oz rule, that if he's on TV, he's lying. He did that during his career on his TV show. He's done that during his campaign about lying about our record here. And he's also lying, probably during this debate. And it got progressively worse. While he was clear about his support for abortion rights, we'll get to Oz's position in a bit, he had great difficulty in answering a question about fracking. You're saying tonight that you support fracking, that you've always supported fracking. But there is that 2018 interview that you said, quote, I don't support fracking at all. So how do you square the two? Uh, I, I, I do support fracking, and I don't, I don't, I support fracking, and I stand, and I do support fracking. And when Federman was asked why he refuses to release his medical records, he had trouble with the answer. Last week, you released this note from your doctor saying you can work full duty in public office, but you have not released your detailed medical records surrounding your stroke. 
Mr. Fetterman, will you pledge tonight to release those records in the interest of transparency? You have 60 seconds. No. Uh, to me, for transparency is about showing up. I'm here today to have a debate. I have you know, spe speeches in front of 3,000 people in Montgomery County, you know, all across Pennsylvania, big, big crowds. You know, I believe if my doctor believes that I'm fit to serve, and, and that's what I believe is appropriate. And now with two weeks before the election, you know, I have run a campaign and I've been very transparent about being very open about the fact we're in use captioning. And I believe that again, my doctors, the real doctors that I believe in, they all believe that I'm ready to be served. Follow up, I didn't hear you say you would release your full medical records, why not? You have 30 seconds. No, uh, yeah, again, my doctor L believes that I'm fit to be serving, and that's what I believe is where I'm standing. A debate is many things. It shows how and if candidates are prepared to deal with the situations they may face while in office. It informs people how they intend to vote while in office. But it's also about whether the viewers and listeners like what they see and hear. One of the reasons John F. Kennedy was thought to have the edge over Richard Nixon in their 1960 debates was how well he looked on camera. And so, in that sense, it was disappointing, maybe even a little painful, to watch Fetterman struggle the way he did. Yes, he's recovering from a stroke. Yes, he had to rely on closed captioning for the questions as well as the Oz interruptions. It impaired his ability to respond. It was there for the whole country to witness. Reaction on social media was not especially kind. But there's a difference between a candidate struggling to express himself and one who may be misrepresenting himself altogether. Memon Oz had no speech impairment, but what he said Tuesday night often didn't jive with what he's been saying on the campaign trail. Once known for supporting women's reproductive rights, he changed his position as a candidate and won Trump's endorsement before the primary, which he narrowly won. He's been taking Trump-like positions ever since. But if he was trying to sound moderate when faced with a question about abortion during the debate, he may not have succeeded. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, letting the democracy that's always allowed our nation to thrive to put the best ideas forward so states can decide for themselves. Women, doctors, okay. Local political leaders? Hmm. The same local political leaders that have been passing anti-abortion legislation all around the country? The Fetterman campaign had fun with that one. This is who Dr. Oz wants in charge of women's health care decisions. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders, <laughs> local uh, political leaders, <laughs> local uh, political leaders. Oz would let politicians like Doug Mastriano ban abortion without exceptions even in cases of rape, incest, or life of the mother. Oz is too extreme for Pennsylvania. I'm John Fetterman, and I approve this message. For his part, Fetterman was clear about where he stood. If you believe that the choice for abortion belongs between you and your doctor, that's what I fight for. Roe v. Wade, for me, is, should be the law. He celebrated when Roe v. Wade went down. But there were missed opportunities for the Fetterman camp. A question to Oz about whether he supports Lindsey Graham's proposal to ban abortion nationally after 15 weeks was easily swatted away by the Republican, who said he believed the future of abortion was up to the states. 
But neither the moderators nor Fetterman asked Oz where he stood on the Dobbs decision. The moderators made no attempt to see where Oz stood with regard to gubernatorial candidate Doug Mastriano, who is seen by many as extreme on abortion rights. Perhaps a candidate with a clearer mind would have pounced. But Oz used a familiar and apparently successful national Republican tactic linking Fetterman to rising crime. John Fetterman, during this crime wave, has been trying to get as many murderers convicted and sentenced to life in prison out of jail as possible. It's not clear what difference the debate made. Oz, like many Republicans around the country, was already gaining in the polls. And Fetterman, on stage, was either a disaster or courageous. But it's clear that his one solid lead has evaporated. One thing not on the campaign calendar was the brutal assault Friday on Paul Pelosi, husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, at their home in San Francisco. A guy named David DePape broke into the Pelosi's home yelling, Where is Nancy? who was in Washington at the time, and fractured her 82-year-old husband's skull with a hammer. DePape, 42, has posted on social media that the 2020 election was stolen, and included links to videos produced by my pillow conspiracist Mike Lindell. He's questioned the Holocaust and said the war in Ukraine was a ploy for Jews to buy land. He also posted many anti-Semitic memes. Paul Pelosi has undergone, quote, successful surgery to repair a skull fracture and serious injuries to his right arm and hands. He's expected to make a full physical recovery. President Biden condemned the attack and added, You know, uh, it's reports that the same chant was used by this guy they have in custody that was used on January 6th in the attacks on the U.S. Capitol. I'm not making this up. This isn't reported. I can't guarantee it. I can tell you what's being reported. The chant was, Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? This is despicable. There's no place in America. There's too much violence, political violence, too much hatred, too much vitriol. And what makes us think that one party can talk about stolen elections, COVID being a hoax, there's all a bunch of lies, and it not affect people who may not be so well-balanced. What makes us think that it's not going to corrode the political climate? Enough is enough is enough. Every person of good conscience needs to clearly and unambiguously stand up against the violence in our politics, regardless what your politics are. And while an assortment of right-wing tweets came up with their own conspiracy theories about what really happened in San Francisco, Elon Musk was among those, 
Democrats reminded everyone else about how the January 6th insurrectionists came looking for Nancy Pelosi when they invaded the Capitol, and how Marjorie Taylor Greene once called her a traitor, and that the punishment for treason is execution. She's a traitor to our country. She's guilty of treason. She took an oath to protect American citizens and uphold our laws. And she gives aid and comfort to our enemies who illegally invade our land. That's what treason is. And by our law, representatives and senators can be kicked out and no longer serve in our government. And it's a, it's a crime punishable by death is what treason is. Nancy Pelosi is guilty of treason, and we want her out of our government. And you wonder what inspires someone to break into a home looking to kill a member of Congress. All the rainbows in the sky Start to weep and say goodbye ago, during the last midterm elections, the Democrats recaptured the House after an eight-year absence, thanks mostly to a stronger-than-usual turnout of female voters. Angered by President Trump's rhetoric and policies, women helped the Democrats to a 41-seat gain, returning Nancy Pelosi as Speaker. The 2018 midterm saw more women than ever winning elections to the House. With Trump gone, Joe Biden in the White House, and Democrats in charge of the House and Senate, there was a sense that the urgency women felt during the 2018 midterms would not be there this year. But when a slew of Republican state legislatures began passing bills that curtailed or ended the right to an abortion, followed by the Supreme Court's ruling in June that overturned the Roe decision, women from both parties began expressing their fury that their reproductive freedom was being taken away. But the story of women and the 2022 elections goes further than just abortion rights. Conservative, nationally known, anti-choice Republicans such as Sarah Palin, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Kristi Noem, and others are on the ballot this year and most are likely to win, or many are likely to win. Kerry Lake's bid for governor of Arizona is picking up steam against an unabashed pro-choice female Democrat. If there is a message in all this... Debbie Walsh will explain it to us, I hope. <laughs> She's the director of the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University and an expert on the subject. Debbie, it's great having you back on The Political Junkie. Thanks for having me, Ken. Well, it's great having you. And, you know, earlier this summer, in, in the aftermath of the court's Dobbs decision and then that vote in Kansas, the conventional wisdom was that the 2022 midterms were going to be a referendum on abortion. Now, historically, I think it's fair to say that it's been anti-abortion voters who are most inspired to vote on that issue. 
but the anger from the abortion rights voters seemed at the time to be deafening. I guess my first question is, is that still the case? Oh, so you're starting off with one of the most complicated questions of all of this, which is, I think it still is out there. The abortion issue still matters to women voters. It's, it's energized a group of new women voters, particularly young women voters who have come out and registered at higher numbers. Um, you know, women have always outvoted men since 1980. Um, we've seen women voting differently. Um, in the last presidential, about 10 million more women voted than men. The question is, there's a lot of other issues on the table at this moment for in people's lives uh, that have a huge impact. And it is true that it feels as though the abortion issue has receded a bit in sort of primacy, but I still think it is in the mix. The economy is front and center. People are trying to make ends meet, pay bills, deal with the increased cost of everything um, from food to gas to heating their homes, all of it. So that reigns still supreme, as it always does in elections. Um, but I do think that in the mix of these issues, of all of these issues, abortion has risen up. And it may, in fact, be something that mobilizes and energizes a group of women to come out and vote who might not have voted at all in the past. Um, and I think that's what we're, we're going to be watching for. Um, could it have an impact on some of these close races? It may well. Clearly, the Democrats are banking on that when you watch the ads from candidates around the country. Uh, the, you know, fill in the blank of the name of the Republican candidate. It's, it's he or she is too extreme for whichever state that candidate is running in. That's the Democratic message. Um, they are pounding that home. So they are clearly hoping that that is an issue that will energize and mobilize. While it might not be the absolute most important issue, it might be the issue that gets women to the polls and other folks that care about this issue. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think it's fair to say that as Republicans are zeroing in on inflation and, and concerns about crime, those are issues that concern women as well. They absolutely do concern women. But I think, you know, when you think about the economy, you have to remember that a woman's right to choose is also an economic issue, and it's an economic issue that affects women and men. Um, it affects families. Um, when and if to have children is a choice um, that can be empowering in terms of eco their economic future, being able to work a full-time job. Is it a bright moment to be having to also pay for child care, which we do not have affordable child care in this country? So it's both an economic issue and a health issue. So, you know, I think that one of the things that probably I, I'm watching in a lot of these races, I'm not sure that the Democratic Party is messaging the abortion issue as an economic issue. And, and I think that would be a wise move. I think it's fair to say that, as I said earlier, that the women were probably mostly responsible for the Democrats' victories in 2018. Do you get a sense that they're as energized this year as they were then? I mean, I mean, certainly in, in September, certainly after Dobbs and, and Kansas, it seems like women were really motivated. But, and that's, you know, I would say that the Dobbs decision seemed to be a wake-up call. But going into the final two, three weeks of the election... I guess the question is, how would you characterize the role of women this year? 
So in 2018, women voters made a difference and women candidates made a difference. And it was women candidates, women who won those House seats that were responsible for flipping the House from red to blue. And the gains, frankly, that the Republican Party made two years later um, were in large part because of Republican women flipping seats from blue to red. Um, So women have been uh, an important component as candidates and a good investment um, by both parties in the last two cycles. In this cycle, we did not see the kind of record numbers of women candidates that we have in the last two cycles. No record for the House, no record for the Senate. We did see, we have seen records for gubernatorial candidates. And I think that women are involved and engaged. And we, I don't think the attention is on women as voters in the same way. Um, I do think that the momentum that we saw right after the Dobbs decision, that kind of rage that we saw across the country that we saw reflected in the Kansas vote as well, that's hard to sustain. And so the question will be, will they show up um, on Election Day? Are they showing up now in states where there's early voting um, at rates and at numbers that will have an impact on the outcome of the election? You know, you were talking about the number of women running for the Senate, for the House, and apparently a record number running for governor this year. But, you know, these anti-abortion referenda around the country, they start at the state legislative level. What's the scorecard showing women, you know, running for these local offices? We have record number of women right now running for the state legislature up on the Republican side, down a little bit, actually, on the Democratic side. I do think um, that one of the things that I hope will happen as a result of the Dobbs decision, it's a, it is a wake-up call again for women across this country that elections have consequences, right? Um that it matters who you vote for, the folks that you vote for, um, pass laws, but also appoint judges. Um, And so these elections really matter. But now we're seeing, I think, a stark wake-up call about not just thinking about Congress. And we at the Center for American Women in Politics for years have been putting an emphasis on women serving in state legislatures. Um, But I'm glad to see the rest of the world has woken up to that because State legislatures and state government um, do more than just pass local laws that sort of, they also set the stage for state judges. They set the stage for where, uh, for redistricting, um, and they regulate things like abortion now um, in a way that I think people did not think about in the same way. So I think this emphasis on the state's is going to grow. And we're going to be watching particularly next year um, in the off-year legislative elections, particularly in Virginia, where it's a very close break on the in the legislature, had been Democrat, now Republican again, and we'll see what happens. And whether we see um, two years from now, more women running and more women running at the state legislative level. And That's the encouraging news also at the gubernatorial level, seeing this record number this cycle. Well, speaking of uh, 
gubernatorial elections, there are probably three going to be three new women governors uh, in states that have never elected them: New York, Massachusetts, and Arkansas. That's that's, that, right. that's history in the making, right there, right? We have history in the making right there. Um, we also have the potential, um, very likely in Massachusetts, with Mara Healy winning that seat for governor. Um, and then the competitive race out in Oregon, uh, a three-way all-women's race, an independent candidate um, uh, who is a woman, and then uh, a Democrat and a Republican, all, by the way, who served in the legislature. Um, so, again, the importance of state legislatures. But if uh, Tina Kotek, the Democrat in Oregon, were to win, both she and Mara Healy would be the first lesbian women governors in the United States. So we're seeing a number of potential firsts also in, in Arkansas um, and in Massachusetts, very likely seeing a woman governor and a woman lieutenant governor, which we've never seen um, serving at the same time. And of course, in Georgia, if Stacey Abrams were to win that race, she would be the first black woman ever elected governor in the history of the United States. Well, you know, for nearly four years, Democrats in Georgia have been like counting the days until Stacey Abrams would run again. But I know four years ago it was a, a, you know one of the most exciting races in the country, but I have I've heard less and less about the race. Democrats telling me that they're less optimistic than they were four years ago. What happened? Well, you know I think it, it's a rematch, which in some ways should inspire more excitement. I think Brian Kemp shifted in some ways in people's minds after that election when. And since then, it, it doesn't it hasn't inspired that same vehemence of anti-Trumpism because Trump has come down on Brian Kemp. Um, and so I think he has picked up some more of that um, kind of moderate um, or mainstream middle of the more middle of the road Republican support. But Kemp has passed some pretty strong anti-voting. Absolutely. But I think that I think that it in in many ways uh, it has felt as though his persona has shifted publicly, whether it's true or not. Um, that's the sense that we feel um, when you watch that race, I think. And I think there has been a lot of focus on the Senate race, obviously, in Georgia, the the kind of craziness of that Senate race beyond has belief taken up, has taken up a lot of the oxygen um, around the politics. But you know, Stacey Abrams, I think, is running still a strong campaign. I think I've watched her. I've watched her, and I've watched the campaign. I think there's always a concern um, with a candidate in a rematch where they're sort of don't run a different campaign. I feel like she has run a different campaign. I think she's taken on the abortion issue in a very straightforward way and in a way that I think is relatable for a lot of people where she has shifted and evolved in her own position about choice. Um, and she talks about that very frankly. I think she's still a very authentic candidate that inspires a lot of voters. Um, and the question is, Will she be able to turn out voters in the same way she has in the past? I think a lot of it's going to depend on that Senate race as well. You know, I always hear that, you know, how I, I think it's probably laziness more than anything else, how all women think the same and all black voters think the same. But, you know, the, a perfect example of why 
it would be foolish to lump all female candidates together as a monolith is Arizona, where Carrie Lake, the Republican, and Katie Dobbs, a Democrat, have nothing in common except their gender. Gender. Exactly. Wait, there's, and I a, think... there's an R at the end of that word, right? Gender. Yeah. <laughs> and their agenda are completely opposite. <laughs> right. Um, I will say that I think that we have always talked about the fact that women are not monolithic, right? Um, and uh, women voters are not monolithic. They they cross the spectrum. Um, uh, black women voters are among the most solid Democratic voters out there. Um, white women vary enormously by education level, by marital status, uh, by where they live, um, and, and range across the spectrum. Um, and you see it absolutely in Arizona. Um, so you see it in, among the candidates. Uh, you see it among voters. I know. I think one of the one of the things that we were so pleased in watching the primary for the presidency last time on the Democratic side was seeing six women on those Democratic debate stages and voters having a chance to see that even within the Democratic Party, there is tremendous variation among the women and where they stand on issues and their level of, you know, moderate to progressive. Um, and you certainly see it in many of these, and it becomes crystal clear when you watch some of these women versus women races, like the race in Arizona, like the race up in uh, Alaska. You know, so so there there is tremendous variation. Um, you know, women women are members of both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, and even within the Republican Party, you know, you have a Lisa Murkowski and a Sarah Palin, both from the same state, both very different kinds of Republicans. You know, we're talking about uh, possible, at least the conventional wisdom seems to be an in, a little indication that Republicans may be on the move, the momentum the, in the final weeks of the campaign. I saw a poll that showed Kathy Hochul and, you know, the governor of New York with a, a smaller lead uh, than, than she had tightening up, right? In Oregon, uh, it looks it's possible that the Republican uh, woman could uh, be the first Republican to win the governorship there in 40 years. But then I see a poll in Oklahoma that showed Democrat Joy Hoffmeister with a, a slight lead over the incumbent Republican Kevin Stitt. And that's one race that was never on my radar. What, what I know. What's happening that's there? That's an interesting race. That's an interesting race. Well, part of it is um, he is very unpopular. <laughs> He's a very unpopular governor. And she was a Republican. You know, she changed party um, and people like her. And so I th- and, and a number of prominent Republicans have come out in support of her. So that race is a race to walk. There's an issue in, in Oregon, then it's crime and homelessness um, in Portland. And that is really haunting Tina Kotek. And she is tied much more so to Kate Brown, the current governor. And Kate Brown is not very popular. I think she's one of the most unpopular incumbent governors um, right now, currently serving governors, maybe second only to uh, the governor of Oklahoma. So those are the things that are holding back Tina Kotek right now. But yeah, I think that race in Oklahoma is a fascinating one and one to watch. You know, I was just thinking of the Oregon race. I mean, I know they have male-only voting in uh, in Oregon, and 
And I don't know why women... You mean M-A-I-O. Well, that was, I was setting you up for a joke. Okay, I'm not going to do that joke. But <laughs> let me go to the house for a second because we're going we're gonna to have a house where there's no Liz Cheney anymore, but we will have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert perhaps, you know, risen to leadership positions. That's... <laughs> I don't know. I mean, look, uh, women, you know, women are women are women, but but that is just so astonishing that Liz Cheney has become an, the enemy to the Republican leadership and Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's talked about, you know, the assassination of uh, Nancy Pelosi. That seems to be the norm. And, I, you know, you and I could probably talk about this all day, but. Yeah, it's disturbing. Uh, it's, you know, and and and. and you know, what we would like to see are women in both parties who are supporting democracy. Who right? are from Earth, right, exactly. And the preservation of our democracy. Um, and there are Republicans who do, who are there. Um, uh, and, and I, you know, I think Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene are the absolute extremes. But, um, but unfortunately, I think the party has shifted more and more in that direction is more and more afraid of the blowback from from not supporting um, some of those things, even if they don't personally believe them, they they articulate those things. I think uh, you know one of the reasons that um, you know that we keep doing the work we do is when you see somebody like Liz Cheney, um, you know, a woman who absolutely stands up. Um, in many ways, we often talk about Nancy Pelosi as a woman with a spine of steel, and I think of that with Liz Cheney. I mean, Liz Cheney is probably more conservative, um, you know, by any definition in terms of her position on issues than most members of that of that uh, chamber, and probably more so than Donald Trump. But he, she is somebody who stands up for the democracy, um, and we need more. We need more folks who will do that and certainly on the Republican side need many more folks who are standing up and saying when they see something is wrong, they say it. So I just, you know, commend her um, and hope that there will be more women in the Republican Party who will follow in her footsteps. But the challenge, of course, is that um, the kind of abuse that somebody like that gets. I mean, this is somebody who has been a stalwart in the party um, and comes from a you know, an incredible pedigree within the Republican Party and the kind of abuse that she gets and the kind of vitriol against her is astonishing. We were talking earlier about history being made in races for governor, but there's also history about to be made, likely about to be made in Vermont for the House. Absolutely. We have, it's always, I think people are always stunned when they hear that Vermont is the only state in the country that has never sent a woman to its congressional delegation, House or Senate. Uh, and the other state that you, they used to be Mississippi and Vermont, and then Mississippi beat Vermont to it. Um, and, you know, it, it's a, it, it will, it's the woman who is likely to, uh, to win that race is a leader in the, in the Vermont legislature. Um, Vermont has elected women as governor. They have, um, they're in the top 10. I think they're actually number two for the percentage of women serving in its state legislature. Uh, but there are so few seats in Vermont and these guys stay in them forever. <laughs> right. I mean, right. Pat Leahy, you know, he was elected in 74. He's just leaving right. now. 
and Bernie Sanders, who was in the House and now in the Senate. And, um, you know, so it, it I think the, and because these are seats that are largely held by Democrats, the Democratic women, you know, wait patiently uh, for those openings. And happily, um, this time around, it ended up in the primaries, a woman versus woman race on the Democratic side. So, yes, quite likely to see that um, history-making moment in Vermont this cycle. And let me end with the Senate, because I think that's really what, what everyone is watching. It seems like Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada is the most vulnerable of all the Democratic incumbents in the Senate, male or female. Yes. And that race, I think she is the last polling I saw. You may have seen something more recent. She is a teeny tiny bit ahead. But it is a rough race. She is in a very tight race, and uh, she is the only Latina serving um, in the United States Senate now. Um, there are two potential, you know, we also have currently no black women serving in the United States Senate. When Kamala Harris became vice president, um, there is a real void there. Um, there are two Senate races that we're watching. Val Demings down in Florida uh, running a harder race against Marco Rubio for that Senate seat. But Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, an open Senate seat, uh, both black women. And we're watching to see if we might see that that void of black women's voices in the Senate come to an end, which would be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, what I've seen is Deming, both Demings and Beasley are very good candidates, but if I had to, had to, had to predict, I would think that both ultimately fail. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not predicting, Ken. No, 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 I don't <laughs> want you to predict. And I shouldn't be doing that either because I'm always wrong. But speaking of close races and speaking of races we're not going to predict, Maggie Hassan barely won her seat six years ago in New Hampshire. And when the Republican, Don Baldick, won the Republican, you know, the primary, we thought, well, that's going to be an easy win for Hassan because Baldick is so far to the right. And yet that's another race that's pick em. It's another. It's another close race. I, I, I would predict she pulls it out. Oh, but, wait, I heard a prediction. But I think New Hampshire is a is a state that is sort of, you know, it's idiosyncratic in this way. Right. I mean, they have a. Republican governor um, and uh, Democratic Senate representation in the House as well. Um, one of the first states to elect an all-female congressional delegation. So it's a it's an idiosyncratic state, but I, I think I think she pulls it out. I think the Republican candidate is just too conservative for for New Hampshire. Let me ask you a tough question that I don't know the answer to either, but. And I know your organization is nonpartisan, so I'm gonna, but I'm going to try to ask this question the best way I can figure out. If, if the Republicans win the House, and I think they will, if, they, if the Republicans win the House and they come close in the Senate, and the reason is because female voters were concerned more about the economy and crime and, and the fact that many anti-abortion Republican women are, are, can be elected— is that considered a good election for women? You know, in other words, can you have a, a year of the woman election, even if it results in Republican victories, you know, women, women who are anti-choice? I think there is. I would be shocked if we don't see more women voting than men, because we've seen that for decades now. Women voters play a powerful role, but they don't necessarily decide the outcome of the 
of individual races. And, you know, we've seen it a few times in some very close races where that women's vote can make a difference. So we'll see at the end of the day whether, you know, where where did women's votes as a whole uh, play in some of those races. But, you know, one of the things about opening the doors and changing I don't want to say changing the rules, but saying that the gatekeepers are thinking differently about who who can be candidates and and making sure that the process is more equitable for women and men. I think all kinds of women will will run across the board, and we see what we shall see. But um, it is still, I think, at the end of the day, we want to make sure that women's voices are part of the mix. Um, and then people can make choices about which women they want to see elected. Debbie Walsh is the director of the Center for American Women and Politics at Rutgers University. Debbie, thank you for your expertise and uh, good luck on November 8th. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ken. And how about those Yankees? <laughs> how oh, about those? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. You don't like the Yankees. I forgot that. <laughs> Debbie, thank you so much. Thank you. The moment that I step outside, so many reasons for me to run and hide. I can't do the little things I love so dear. Cause it's all those little things that I fear. Cause I'm just a girl, I'd rather not be. Cause they won't. Time for this week in political history. It was 20 years ago this week, 11 days before the 2002 midterm elections, and the unfathomable happened. This is an ABC News special report. Good afternoon, everybody. We interrupt your regular programming to tell you of a plane crash in northeastern Minnesota. We have just had confirmed a short while ago eight people were killed on a small beach aircraft that was on its way to Eveleth, Minnesota, including Senator Paul Wellstone of Minnesota. And according to the senior staff in the senator's office, not only the senator, but his wife, Sheila, his daughter, three members of his staff, and the two pilots. Paul Wellstone, the Democratic senator from Minnesota, in a tight race against Republican Norm Coleman, was gone at age 58. His campaign was going to be a referendum on Iraq. Unlike other leading members of his party, such as Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, Tom Daschle, John Kerry, and Harry Reid, among others, Wellstone was opposed to giving President Bush the authority to go to war against Saddam Hussein. His no vote two weeks earlier became the defining issue in his bid for a third term. Bill Salisbury covered Wellstone for 20 years as a correspondent for the St. Paul Pioneer Press. This was my interview with Bill, conducted eight years ago. I'm bringing it back now to remember Paul Wellstone 20 years after his death. Bill, last week on the show, we talked to a reporter who was covering Mel Carnahan's Senate race in Missouri that was cut short by a plane crash. Here we are two years later in Minnesota and another unspeakable tragedy. 
where were you when you heard the news about the Wellstone crash? Uh, it was a Friday morning, and I was sitting in my in the Capitol press room at the state Capitol here in St. Paul. And what was your reaction and how you heard and things like that? Uh, we started getting calls and, and uh, hearing rumors that the plane had gone down before they confirmed that, that, uh, that everyone on it had been killed. And so there was a period of, it was late morning, and there was a period of, of probably 30 to 45 minutes where we weren't sure until we got confirmation that Paul and Sheila and their daughter and, and the rest of the crew had, had been killed. And uh, I was stunned, and so were most of my colleagues, and in shock for a while. And then we quickly decided we better rush uh, down the street to uh, Wellstone's campaign headquarters, which are in the university about a mile from the Capitol. And by the time we got there, hundreds of people were already gathered. There was just a huge outpouring of support. Uh, I'd never seen anything like it. Uh, Ted Kennedy showed up, uh, along with Walter Mondale, to console the staff. And uh, within hours, there was just an impromptu memorial service uh, organized on the steps of the state capitol where thousands of people showed up. Now, I remember that day so well, and I remember... The early reports suggested that Kennedy, who was campaigning with Wellstone earlier that day, was on that plane. Do you remember hearing that? Sure, I remember that rumor, but it was quickly dispelled. Now, you also knew, I mean, his wife, Sheila, was Paul Wellstone's partner in every sense of the word. Uh, She was with him all the time. She was his constant companion, even worked in his Senate office with him. So tell us a little bit about her. I mean, she apparently everything that Paul Wellstone was, she was exactly like this, exactly the same. Well, she she was quiet. Well, he was passionate and fiery and, and uh, outspoken. She was quiet, but she was a very loving, affectionate person who took had a deep love for people. She loved to get to know people and hug them. And so they both were just very affectionate people to be around. Then came this memorial service that that was nationally televised. Uh, basically, that became a controversy in itself. Uh, Republicans criticized it as a partisan campaign rally. I think, if, if memory serves, uh, Governor Jesse Ventura walked out of it in protest. And Democrats said it wasn't a partisan rally at all. What was your take on it? Oh, it, it was a—I mean, there were 20,000 people packed into the University of Minnesota basketball arena. And as uh, Trent Lott walked in, they started booing him. When uh, Governor Jesse Ventura walked in, he got booed. But the turning point was uh, where one of the uh, eulogizers, a, a longtime friend of Wellstone, implored everyone there to help us win this election for Paul, Paul Wellstone. And it was just a huge turning point in the election. Before that, that was just a few days before the, the election itself. Before that, the Democrats had decided attacked Walter Mondale into running in, in Wellstone's place. And the first polls taken uh, a week before the election showed Mondale with an eight-point lead. But after the, uh, that memorial service, it turned everything on its ear, and, and uh, uh, Norm Coleman won by a fairly comfortable margin, by a few percentage points. But that was probably the most serious mistake made by a political party in my memory. So basically, I mean, so you agree with that that that, that argument that it became a, a political rally uh, and less so a, a, a memorial to Paul? Well, I don't just agree with it. We did a survey afterwards that found that that was the turning point that swayed uh, about four and five independent voters to switch to Coleman. 
it wasn't, I mean, we can't blame Mondale for any of this. I mean, Mondale no. had been the former senator, the former vice president, and he had been out of the public eye for quite some time. Uh, but he actually, but he ran, it was, it was a fairly close result, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a couple percentage points. I can't remember exactly what it was, Ken. But, yeah, and there was a lot of residual goodwill for, for Mondale, but, you know, he had been out of politics here for 18 years. And uh, I think a lot of people wondered whether he was still up to the task. But more than that, it was a reaction to that memorial service being turned into a political rally. So, so Coleman wins the election. Do you ever think about what would have happened had there been, I mean, this is, this is an impossible question to ask you, but what would have happened if, had there been no plane crash? Coleman and Wollstone were neck and neck in the polls, and it was, it was a, a true battle over Iraq. I've wondered that a lot. Uh, Norm Coleman showed me the the uh, tracking polls leading right up to the uh, night before the crash, and by then the the race had tightened. Wellstone had a a lead somewhere in the upper single digits, probably seven or eight points in the mid October polls, but the race started closing, uh, and I think a lot of it was in response to Wellstone's vote against uh, uh, Iraq, and uh, those tracking polls showed. Coleman up one night, Wellstone up the next, and it was very, very tight there at the end. Uh, so I, I couldn't predict it. A lot of people, uh, particularly Democrats, were, were confident that Wellstone would have won. But what, from what I know, I, I think it was too close to call. Has there ever been uh, an adequate investigation of the crash? Well, there certainly was an investigation into the crash, and it was attributed to pilot error. The pilot who was uh, running, the, you know, flying the plane at that point uh, had a questionable record. He hadn't gotten much sleep. He had covered up a criminal record, and uh, all the evidence afterwards seemed to point to that pilot as making a, a crucial error. But also, the weather was miserable. It was about 31 degrees, light snow, you know, moist. It was a dark, miserable day, and and uh, it, it certainly could have caused a crash. And, 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 and Senator Wellstone decided to go up to Eveleth to, to pay respects to the father of a, a friend who, right, yeah. who died? Uh, yeah, the father of a very prominent legislator up there. Uh, I had been on that plane with Wellstone the previous Saturday, and uh, Paul hated flying in small planes. And I teased him about it. I grew up flying, and my dad had a little plane, and uh, so I, I kind of teased him about it. But he was a white-knuckle flyer, and um, I guess we now know why. Let me go back to the beginning of Wellstone's career. He was not supposed to beat Rudy Boschwitz in 1990, but he had these two remarkable commercials. Uh, and I have two of them here. The first one was a biographical spot in which he, a seemingly, a seemingly out-of-breath Wellstone rushed through his qualifications. Let's listen to that one. I'm Paul Wellstone, and I'm running for the United States Senate from Minnesota. Unlike my opponent, I don't have $6 million, so I'm going to have to talk fast. This is my wife, Sheila, and our children. This is my house in Northville, where I've lived for 21 years. My son, David, farms, and I've worked with Minnesota farmers for years. We must stop the poisoning of the air and the land and the water. I'll lead the fight for national health care. I've been a teacher for 24 years. Labor indoors. Paul Wellstone won't slow down after he's elected. Vote for Paul Wellstone on November 6th. I mean, I love that one, but there was a, the other one was a two-minute ad, and that's unusual having a two-minute ad. But this one was even more memorable. Uh, Wellstone spent the entire time in a futile effort to track down Senator Boschwitz to get him to debate. <laughs> I don't know where he is. He's not in Minneapolis. They say he's campaigning. Then I go to St. Paul. They say he's in Milwaukee. 
Rest assured, there will be debates on the key issues of this campaign. Look for upcoming dates and places. And in the meantime, if you see a silver-haired gentleman in a plaid shirt, mention I'm looking for him. Yes, uh, information. Do you have the telephone number of a Rudy Boschwitz, please, in Plymouth? Thank you. Those were great commercials, weren't they? They were hilarious. But it also really captured Wellstone. You know, he was a strange campaigner. He didn't have any money, a little political experience. He campaigned around the state in a rickety old green bus and often wearing work shirts and jeans. He just was not a typical guy. And uh, he was just full of energy. He, you know, he would walk into a room, he would bounce in and he'd trot over and grab people and hug them and shake everybody's hand. And, uh, you know, he would just defy the stereotypical image of a politician. When you think of his Senate record, what stands out most for you? Um, what stands out most, you know, he got the a bill passed for people receiving insurance for uh, mental illness and chemical dependence. It's called the Wellstone Law, the Wellstone Act. So um, I think that was probably his biggest legislative achievement. And that was interesting. It was a bipartisan bill that he worked on with Pete Domenici and a Republican congressman from Minnesota named Jim Ramstad. But when I think back on his legacy, I think what's most important was that he just inspired thousands of people to continue to fight for the progressive uh, causes that he championed. Uh, you know, one of his favorite sayings was, the future does not belong to those who stand on the sidelines. And, and there still is a Willstone action group that's, that trains people for you know, grassroots organizing and, and, uh, and campaigning. And I, I suspect that's his most important legacy. And he often said, I know you know this, he said that, uh, I'm here to represent the little fellers, not the Rockefellers. <laughs> right. It's one of his favorite lines. Used it on the floor of the Senate frequently. He talked about running for president in 2000. How serious do you think he was? And do you think he really wanted to be president? Yes, I think he wanted to be president. I traveled to both uh, New Hampshire and Iowa with him. And uh, he was, I don't know if you knew this, but he, uh, in addition to having MS, he had a a bad back. And so uh, when we'd go from stop to stop, he'd sit in the passenger seat in the front seat and face backwards because his back hurt him so bad he couldn't stand it. He couldn't, it, he could, it was too painful for him to sit in the car, but he was so serious about being there that he is there. But he didn't take himself so seriously. Um, I remember the first stop in New Hampshire was in Plymouth, New Hampshire, and uh, he told a story about walking into a barbershop there and introducing himself, hi, I'm Paul Stone, Wellstone, and I'm running for president. He said, the barber turned to him and said, yes, we're just laughing about that. That's the, that's the old uh, Morris Udall, Mo Udall joke. What was it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Udall used to say the same thing. When was the, what was the last time you were with him, uh, last time you were with him? I think it was that Saturday on, on the airplane where we traveled around the state and did a bunch of campaign stops. And uh, it was just, it was classical Wellstone, you know. Uh, he just voted against the Iraq war thing, and the first stop he made was at a conference for disabled veterans in a small city in west-central Minnesota. And uh, I thought, oh, this is going to be great. I'm going to see this guy get pounded by veterans for being against the war. And he walked in, and he got a standing ovation. And so I started asking people, what's going on here? And he said, well, you know, Wellstone may not have agreed with, they disagreed with him on the war, but they loved him because he stood up for, he really fought hard for disabled veterans, getting the VA to take care of them. It was just, uh, it was such a telling uh, moment for me. Bill Salisbury is a reporter with the St. Paul Pioneer Press. 
He covered Paul Wellstone for 20 years. Bill, thanks so much for sharing your memories. Ken, thank you for giving me the opportunity. It was 20 years ago, in 2002, when Minnesota's Paul Wellstone, one of the most liberal members of the U.S. Senate, died in a plane crash along with his wife, his daughter, and members of his staff. You're listening to This Week in Political History on The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. That's it for this week's show. Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. And please, please vote. I'll see you soon.